Welcome to Two Pastors, Take a Walk and Make a Podcast, except we took a run, and I want that noted. <laughs> this is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. What we're really good at is titles. I feel like that's really one of our best. You're always asking me if I have a title for my sermon, and I'm always like, no, You never, never have a title for your because sermon. Because I'm, I just think they're, I think they're actually can be super, super, super cool if you're good at them, and I'm not. And so my workaround for not being good at them is just to string a lot of rent, make them long. I always create a title just in case someone asks a member of the congregation, well, what did your pastor talk about? If the sermon was really bad and it didn't really say anything, they can just always go to the title. Oh, he talked about X, Y, Z. So what is astonishing you this week? Well, speaking of worship... On Sunday, I pulled out of the parking lot to go home after worship, and I said to myself out loud, I was alone in the car, that was really satisfying. Hmm. And I'm not a person that um, centers my evaluation or, or uh, evaluates worship centered on my likes and dislikes. Um, and I don't think, okay, I, I like this thing or that thing about worship. Um, I try not to worship, uh, evaluate worship that way. And so it was curious to me that I had that thought. Like It was just really satisfying. And so as I drove home, I asked myself, well, what was so satisfying about worship? Because nothing yeah. spectacular happened. It was just a regular Sunday. And uh, as I looked back at worship, I saw that every element, and this was intentional, every element of worship on Sunday was about honoring and lifting up the name of Jesus, right? From the call to worship, mm -hmm. uh, his name above every name, to all of the songs, the sermon was about the cross, and there was both encouragement and conviction uh, in, in that for me, because I started to think, oh... I probably spend way too much time in my preaching um, talking about other things. I don't want to sound like I never talk about Jesus, but it's very easy to make your preaching about encouraging people, about teaching whatever theological thing I want to teach, and you have to be really intentional about focusing on Jesus. As a matter of fact, there's a, a, a Baptist saying um, when it comes to preaching, it's like, did you get them to Calvary? Like you, every sermon needs to end at Calvary. And as I thought about worship on Sunday, it was all about Jesus. And there was something just really simple and satisfying and powerful about that. Yeah, I think um, that's really an interesting place to go um, because, well, just that thought of you leaving and just being like, oh, we had um, we had some friends join the church on Sunday because um, that's what we are is all friends. And they were saying, um, this couple were saying that they started coming in person when we returned in person after the pandemic. So we didn't know them before. And <laughs> they were sharing with the group 
that the first Sunday they came to the Grove, they got in their car to go home and they just looked at each other and said, what just happened? Mm. <laughs> they said that that and that every week they um, still just get in the car and go, what just happened? And I was like, oh, that's so um, when when I am not full of myself, when I am centered on Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that is what I, the place, I think that's the right response, which sure. is awe, right? When And I think sometimes as pastors, um, we can get so focused on the means and not the end, like we can, and we should be focused on the logistics and on the parts and on the like that the how and the way you know the mechanics of it all and you can just like you can go to a worship service as a critic and you can just show up to see what you think and especially I think people I mean all people are prone to, it's just a it's a defense mechanism mm -hmm. it's a way to protect yourself from the holy and the reality is if a person shows up to worship the Lord um, or even if a person just comes with an open heart seeking seeking the holy, right? With sort of a Moses spirit of like, I'm just going to turn around aside and see. No matter the quality of the preaching or, you know, like the Lord, I just, I just know that the Lord speaks when people are sincerely seeking and listening. Um, so th that's not an excuse to throw slop at the wall and call it art, but... I think it is just a, a, um, a reminder of how important it is to turn our hearts to the Lord once we start and to not get sort of to make them to not make the minor things, the major things as as a preacher or as a, or as a believer. Right. Just to remember at the end of the day, we have the privilege of responding to Jesus, but the center of our lives is not what we do for Jesus or how we do it, or certainly not how we rank ourselves in comparison with other people, but who the Lord is and what the Lord has done and is doing. And um, when you, when you focus on that and center that you do end up walking away being like, wow, wow. <laughs> like what just happened? Well, one of our texts on Sunday was from first Corinthians one 18, uh, which says the, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And several times in the sermon, I said, as, as I was editing the video, um, I noticed uh, several times I said, okay, I'm about to proclaim some things that I believe, but I really don't know how to explain them. Right. And so I'm just gonna proclaim this truth and I was reminded once again that we really are dealing with mystery, profound yeah. mystery. And when you just sit with that, um, there is a real spiritual um, drinking deeply of the well that is Jesus and that I think, is satisfying. And it's so hard, though, um, because... To center mystery in a spiritual community is a really dangerous thing because we've seen how the enemy, how certain powers and principalities of like order and control and power 
have used the true concept of mystery to manipulate and control and harm people, right? So, you know, it, it is difficult as a pastor sometimes to say what is true from the pulpit and to say, like, I can't, I can't explain this to you. And honestly, it's not my job to get you to understand or agree with it, right? Like your opinion is not relevant. And I mean, I, I say this a lot because I think it's really helpful. Like we act like sometimes functionally as if God is Tinkerbell, right? Like, you know, there's that scene in Peter Pan where they break the fourth wall of the play and they're like, Tinkerbell is dying because enough kids don't believe in fairies. Clap if you believe in fairies. I do, I do. If you believe in fairies, clap, clap. And then the audience claps and then the Tinkerbell comes back to life and we act like, like, oh, we need people to believe so that God will be X, Y, or Z. And that's just bad theology. It's not true. And so while we are, you know, it's wonderful to have faith seeking understanding and we do have revelation and God does want to be in relationship with us and to reveal God's self to us. And that's all good. And also there is an element of mystery and faith that we are, we, we ought to be able to rightly center, but to, you know, but I think one of the things that stops us is too many people, honestly, even who are hearing are just aware of how a person in a pulpit purporting to speak for God saying this is true and I don't care if you understand or agree with it like how many incredibly violent and traumatic things have been done in the name of God from that stance and so it's just hard with great humility to center mystery and and there's a real impetus of like we we need people to understand that they they have agency and the capability to know God um, but we also need to be able to center the mystery of God in such a way that we can just live with that gap and with that discomfort and actually come to find comfort in the fact that we can't know full God fully because I have hope not in what I understand about God but in what I don't understand about God and I think that's why there's such a movement particularly in the American quote post-enlightenment or enlightenment church to make God understandable. And so then we reduce God to this formula, really ugly formula, Mm -hmm. which also then is used by people for power and control. So I think, you know, we have to sort of be aware that any way, any kind of God talk is inherently dangerous and teach people to say, not only am I listening to the the words and seeking revelation, but I'm also looking at the fruit of the community and how and how are people, um, you know, what's the culture of this place, um, and particularly what's the culture of this place in reference to those on the margins and those with the least amount of power and um, visible desirable resources. Yeah, for us in this season, it's so easy to begin to center in the church um, the need to upgrade technology, the need to um, rethink our mission in the neighborhood. So many needs, so many things on our to-do list that we can crowd out our focus on Jesus. Yeah, and I think, I mean, when we... And none of of those are bad things. None of them are bad things. And when we wake up, I think, and it's a holy awakening, when we wake up to sort of the gap between who we've grown comfortable being as an institution or as an individual and 
who Christ calls us to be and equips us to be through grace, when we wake up to that gap, it, it, it can be so overwhelming and there can be such a sincere desire to close it, which is holy, but the danger is then we reduce God to a holy to-do list that becomes really um, not life-giving and um, disem- you know disempowering. And so it's you know finding that balance of knowing that you are held and loved and enough in Jesus period and that's not at stake and also accepting and embracing the call to become something new and to be changed and that you know it's not either or it's both and at the same time but I think you know that that sense of okay there's something happening in our communities that we are not causing or controlling and that's actually really wonderful I mean it's terrifying but when we sort of embrace it and let go and let the wave take us under. It's, it's really wonderful. And the more that we do it, the more that we discover that God is in fact trustworthy. But, um, but yeah, that's sort of like, Oh, <laughs> what just happened? Yes. Oh, look, look at God being and God all by God's self. It is, it shouldn't surprise, but it does. Mm-hmm. I, I was, I was caught off guard by the, the pleasant, um, um, it, it was like I just had a really satisfying meal and I was leaning back in the chair saying to myself, that was really good. Yeah. And I think some often like while there's this need or this impulse, and I think it's a, it's a good one that we want to encourage people and we want to equip people. And that's good. I mean, because the gospel is relevant and it's wisdom and it is you know a way of being in the world that is many things including practical but there is you know the 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 danger in that is when the gospel becomes a means to an end other than the the end of being Jesus and it alone that we can find satisfaction and meaning and purpose and life in Jesus and so we we do get to change but it's not a it's not a have to, it's not a project. And that's a real, um, you know, that's just, it's more of, I mean, I hate to get on the Richard Rohr bus so late, but you know, I think he is really helpful about talking about how our Western minds are so binary and we need things to be one or the other. And I definitely, you know, I think like many young Christians, you get to a point and you're like, Oh my gosh, Jesus is about doing, like, I want to do things. Like, I'm not just going to sit in a room and talk, you know, and, and that's good and it's right. And it's holy, it's a holy impulse, but, but it is not then to replace contemplating with, with doing it is to understand that we, you know, whatever, as we've been learning, like you, you be before you do, and then you, you cultivate being and doing from your being with the Lord. So anyway, this has gotten very theoretical very quickly. So, so what's astonishing you? Well, I um, was telling you on the walk that I... Um, run. The run. Yes, that's true. Thank sure. you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, somebody um, who I never met, but who's really influential to me, um, really uh, died yesterday really unexpectedly, and that is Dr. Paul Farmer. And um, I think it, it is interesting... Because I I feel like I ran across his life and his work sort of in the middle of our church transformation process, and it was really helpful. He's a doctor and a public health worker, and I will say, like, 
more than any other thing that I've ever said that might have value to someone's life. If you haven't read um, Tracy Kidder's book about Paul Farmer, which is called Mountains Beyond Mountains, like it's just a a world shifting view book for me. And then Paul Farmer himself has written many books, and I um, I, I don't even know how to put into words how much seeing the witness of his life, really how he was trained as a physician and had this impulse because of work as a child for a while. His family, he was white, but he had very eccentric parents. And so for a while, they like retrofitted a bus and they all lived on a bus without running water and they would like go and pick fruit with migrant workers. And so he got to know a lot of Haitian I mean, I'm not, there are technical terms if they were migrants or refugees or seasonal workers. But in, so when he was then um, in, I think at Duke, and then he was at Duke, if that makes you mad, sorry. And then he went on to medical school at Harvard, but he, he would go to Haiti just because he had an innate love for the Haitian people and very much not in that very typical white savior sort of ideology. And um, he um when he was in Haiti because he went I think um just for the sheer love of the Haitian people then he didn't go as a white person trying to take something to Haiti or trying to fix the Haitian people but really just because he loved the people and their culture and so he began to see just white western um, institutions of medicine and public health and NGOs and philanthropy from the perspective of um, Haitian people and others in the so-called developing world on whom those policies and institutions are often enacted upon, right? And so it just really, he, he both had access to some of the most um, illustrious and powerful um institutions in the Western world and this this deep, um, authentic love and solidarity with the Haitian people that he would constantly risk his access for. And I um and and so, you know, in simple ways there was a there was and continue I mean there's just huge disparities in terms of who gets treated for what diseases based on the luck of where you are born in the world. Right. And so there are just there are many diseases that are completely treatable and and just not even apparent in a Western so-called Western countries that are are killing people all the time in the so-called developing world. And one of those that he he writes about a lot was drug resistant TB, which is interesting to me because I was exposed to TB as a child. Um, and so I'm just always aware of how that's a that's a thing. And um, he he was and there's treatment in spite of the name there is treatment for drug resistant tb and when he was in haiti he which no one invited him to haiti he had no role to in haiti i mean he just went he he gave himself permission to go there and so when he was there he was noticing that people are dying of this disease and then he would go back to the united states and he would treat people for this disease and just like showing up in spaces and asking questions about like why why are we not treating people with 
with this disease, with these drugs that we have. And people, experts, authorities would say, well, we can't treat drug-resistant TB in, quote, third world countries. And he would say, well, yes, we can. We can, right? So just that that way of phrasing it, that this is how it is, and we just all agree, we will all agree to to frame it as a question of like, it can't be done as if it is a, an intellectual problem or some like we don't have the power to treat it or we don't know how to treat it. And he was saying like, well, of course we do. Like if a Haitian person makes it to the United States and is found to have drug resistant TB, we treat them. So it's not the body of a Haitian person that is in some way means the drugs that treat an American won't have the same effect in a Haitian body. Like, of course they do. So you can't, he would go in those spaces and people would say, well, we can't do it. And he would say, well, no, we can, we're just not. And then people would say like, well, no, 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 no. We don't have the resources to do it. And then he would talk about, start quoting the statistics about Halloween costumes and the pet care industry. And like, you know, we spend billions of dollars on Halloween costumes. We spend billions of dollars on Halloween costumes for our pets. So a, we can treat people with drug-resistant TB all around the world, and B, we do have the resources. We're just not putting the resources in those places. And so, you know, the the simplest thing that we can do is just stop lying about it, right? And stop coming to conferences about public health and, and sort of self-identifying as the people who care about access to care in countries and then say like, well, but this is the limit that we've all decided exists and we care more than most Westerners or most Americans. And so, you know, he would just want, he would just disrupt that false peace and say, and people, you know, hated him. And he certainly wasn't going at that point to be invited. He was not on the career track in any way, but what, what he did and, you know, and this is where it's really intersects with me about Jesus and about the way that the kingdom of God is unfolding in the world, you know, he just built his own table, right? And and the Lord provided, I mean, I think from my perspective, provided resources for him. And he just is such a hybrid, like prophet, physician, kingdom person for me. Um, and, you know, just really shifted the paradigm of quote, development and, you know, not talking, we're not developing, we're, we're accompanying people. Like that was his whole model of like, we're not leaders. We're not, you know, we're, we're accompanying people. And he talked a lot about how, you know, there's so many people who want to save the world. And the problem with wanting to save the world is that then you want to, you want a winning cause. And so you pick the winners and you turn your back on the losers. And then there's no point to you. I mean, he wouldn't say there's no point to you, but he meant there's no point to what you're doing. If you're going to, turn away from the weakest, most vulnerable people in order to look like you're saving the world, like it's just a waste. And he would say, like, we have to embrace, like we're fighting the long defeat. Like what we are willing to say is even if we won't win, we're going to put value into delaying, delaying the defeat as long as possible. And I think just for me at a time when we were really wrestling with like, well, what does it mean to be church? And what does it mean if we have to embrace certain things or ignore certain key components of the gospel in order to survive as a church? Then does it matter if we survive at all? And listening, just watching the story of this man sort of refuse to do the things that you have to do in order to have a platform to do the work you want to do and seeing like, oh, I mean, like, 
I, I'm sure he was both someone who was very charismatic and someone who was like completely maddening to actually be in relationship with. So I mean, I don't know him obviously, but you know, he co-created with people, leaders and healers from within these communities, institutions that went on to do the things that everyone said couldn't be done. Like you have to everybody has to pay for treatment. And he would be like, yes, everyone has to pay for treatment. No exceptions, except you can't ever turn anyone away, which meant, I mean, you know, and he, like you can't treat drug resistant. Well, we're going to, I mean, just all of this stuff that he would, people would say it can't be done. And he would just be like, well, it can. So we're going to do it. And we're just going to keep doing it until we don't have the resources to do it. And somehow like the, the oil and the flour never ran out. Right. And people rallied around, this alternative vision of how things um, could be done. And um, I just really was, I just learned a lot. And 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 I, we were saying on the run, on the run, that I think for me as a white Christian, because I grew up in America and I grew up being told, I mean, I met Jesus at the same time that I was being formed through public education where I was told really explicitly that, you know, America was the city on the hill and that, you know, the America was the hope of the world and that we were this force of like liberty and justice for all and democracy. And, and so I really learned to read Jesus through the lens of American exceptionalism. And, and I didn't have a lived experience that ever taught me to challenge that. And so um, then you, you grow. And I, I mean, and I think the gospel will lead us to wherever we need to go, uh, you know, but you, you grow deeper, um, in, into the faith and, you know, are given the tools, ironically, sort of by some of these institutions, you are given the tools to deconstruct these institutions. And, you know, it's a person like Paul Farmer that when you watch him sort of ask all of the irreverent, unacceptable, you know, say the unacceptable true things out loud and destroy the illusions and then see how like, but look, the world didn't fall apart. And even if it did, you know, what does it matter to get invited to a certain table? If you can't tell the truth at that table, then what's even the point of being there? And I think, you know, he wasn't a jerk. He wasn't a person who refused to work with people. He wasn't a person and he wasn't a saint, but he, but I just like, that's the, watching his life helped me go, oh, well, Jesus did that, right? Like, that's what Jesus did. He told the truth to powerful people who weren't evil, but they were wrongly holding the gifts that they'd been given and the traditions that they had inherited. And he, you know, stood in solidarity with people, um, without asking questions about whether it would be worth it or what his return on investment would be. Um, and the, you know, the long defeat, I feel like it's, you know, it's Paul Farmer taught me to understand the cross in a way that all my years of studying theology didn't. Right. Cause that's all abstract theoretical. And then I'm looking at his life and going like, Oh, that is what it looks like to pick up your cross and, and follow. And I, you know, I, been working on a piece that I, I don't, probably nothing will come of, but, you know, it's just interesting because I don't think that he self-professed as a Christian. I don't know. Um, but he, um, but it's just really interesting to me, like, well, what does it mean 
to be a Christian if someone like Paul Farmer, who in really embodied ways is in his area, you know, living the way of Jesus. But if the fact that he hasn't publicly prayed a prayer and put a label on himself means he's not a follower of Jesus, but other people who don't do any of those things, but say, well, I I have feelings in my heart towards Jesus. And that's the only thing that matters. Like this is just a really crazy um, construct that we've accepted. And we were saying on the walk that it's like that parable that Jesus told about the, the father with two sons. And he asked his sons to go work in the vineyard. And the one son said no. And then later thought better of it and went and worked in the vineyard. And the other son said yes right away and then walked out of the room and never worked in the vineyard. And Jesus said to the people listening to the parable, like, who did what the father asked? And they say, well, obviously not the son who said he was going to work in the vineyard, but the son who actually did work in the vineyard. And I feel like the way that we have overreacted to works righteousness and cheapened grace, we've almost made it exactly the opposite. We've said, well, the son who worked in the vineyard like none of that counts. It's only the son who said with his lips, who professed with his lips that he was going to obey the father. That's the only thing that matters. And we've almost made it seem like because we're against works righteousness, we're against following Jesus in any meaningful kind of way. And the reality is grace is meant to be for people who is a, the ability to follow the Lord in a way that is beyond our own innate capacity or even desires, and then be this, the space of the father running to us in spite of the fact that we have messed up and Paul Farmer has messed up. Right. But grace is not meant to be the catch all for people who literally could not have done less than they did, but made a public declaration of faith and then just did whatever the F they wanted with their lives in direct defiance to the way of Jesus. And, and then, said, well, no, (laughs) you know, uh, I'm the elect. Yes. In many ways, we have a Christianity that says, as long as you believe the right thing, live however you want, because what is going to determine your eternity, your status with God is a right confession of faith. And it's almost as if we say belief has nothing to do with how you live and only to do with how you feel or how you pretend to feel or how you say you feel. I mean, and just on the surface of it in any other way, like it just doesn't make sense to say, well, if I, if I believe in vegetarianism, but I eat a steak every night, then no, I don't. Right. If I believe in vegetarian and being a vegetarian and occasionally I slip up and eat a steak, then okay. Like that's a, you know, I don't need to perfectly, but I mean, it's just nonsensical to say, I believe so clearly and absolutely in vegetarianism that now I can eat any Well, it food goes back to the binary thinking of Western culture. Right. It's either this or that. And so we have a tendency to think, well, it's either right confession or right action. And we tend toward um, right confession as the ultimate and disconnected from right action, right living. Mm-hmm. But what I love in all of that is his um, intentional... Uh, being a gadfly toward those who felt like they were at the top 
of doing the right thing, that they were at the top mm-hmm. of the pyramid. That and, and, and you're right, that is what Jesus did in his confrontation with the scribes and the Pharisees. And as, as pastors, as preachers, as, or as just Christians in general, often we do the very opposite. Mm-hmm. It's we turn our gaze toward those who are, I'll just say, on the, the bottom of the moral ladder, however we define that. We ignore those who, they're they're not they're not bad, but their thinking is limited. Like they have defined how far it can go, how far we can help people in terms of medicine, and someone comes along and says, "No, we can do more. We can do a lot more." That's really powerful. Well, and I think like the problem is, you know, there are just so many institutions that are self-referential, right? Like. Why are the people at Harvard the experts in public health? Because they're at Harvard. And so how do you know who's an expert? Well, you go ask Harvard, right? And so I, I think, and the same can be true in our denominational structures, right? Like who gets to say what is right worship? Well, it's the office on worship and theology. And it is because they say they are. And then we can sort of, and I'm not saying that it's worthless, like the folks who are there and who are, work. and I mean, I'm not saying their work and their expertise is worthless. I'm just saying like, we are so trained. I mean, especially as white people, we are so trained to give institutions the benefit of the the benefit of the doubt that we sometimes sit around tables and ignore the fact that the emperor doesn't have any clothes on, right? And and I think that, and we sometimes ask those institutions to tell us, are we, you know, are are we authentic? Do we have integrity? Instead of looking to Jesus and saying well, like, yeah. actually so Jesus you is- can take the words, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and still hold slaves, right? And someone has to come along and say, wait, something isn't right here. Right, and then someone else will say, well, who are you? You know, you weren't Mm -hmm. in that room. Mm -hmm. You don't get to, you know, and the reality is I think part of the thing of having an identity in Jesus is that we say like, look, I'm not out to, you know, throw stones at people. I'm not out to stand in judgment against people, but I also don't need to be affirmed by any human authority or institution. I, I don't. And so I, I can walk in with just an open heart. Or I should be able to walk in with an open heart and say, you know, I'm, I'm here to see what the Lord is doing in this space. And I'm also willing to tell the truth out loud and then take the consequences. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's the problem is sometimes we then, especially I think white Christians, because we have benefited so directly from institutions that were built to serve us, we have a hard time imagining that if we burn our bridges with those institutions, there there is a way to live, right? And and obviously, when we are in healthy and holy multi-ethnic community, there are lots of people who can say to us, friend, <laughs> the, the Lord can provide. And I, I remember, yes. like my, my friend Eustacia Moffat Marshall, I was talking to her once about like finding out that the denomination was no longer doing a particular kind of grant that I thought that, um, you know, it was Hickory Grove press at the time, but I'm like, Oh, we can just get this grant. Like that's the way we'll get to institutional stability. And she just looked at me and was like, Oh, if you are waiting on the Presbyterian denomination to save you, (laughs) 
you're in trouble. And I, in that moment, I'm like, oh gosh, I kind of am, right? Like I kind of feel like God will help me through this institution. And if this institution can't help me, then God can't help me right. either, right? right. Can't be <laughs> you know? helped. And I'm not, again, that's not to say that I don't think God works through those institutions because I think God does. But I think sometimes as white people, we just think like, well, we, we have to, you know, speak within these limits or play within these rules because if we don't we'll get kicked out and like sometimes you got to be kicked out and I think mm. you know and eventually I think most people who are involved in the church and most people who are involved in public health like they really do want to do the things that these institutions exist to do and so if you allow the spirit to lead you you know way deep off the path you know people come around and then you can be ready to you know, to be a, to be a burning bush, to be salt and light or whatever. And to obviously not, you're not those things, but the, but the Lord is those things. Um, so anyway, I'm, I'm sad that he died. And I know that he, you know, is himself sort of, um, a manifestation of our culture that we like to say, oh, there's a savior figure, like a one person, who we can all just follow that one person and then our problems will be fixed. And I think, if, you know, the, his legacy should be every and one of us realizing that while he was, I think, exceptionally brilliant, I mean, it wasn't his brilliance that was life-giving. It was his honesty and his, I, I suppose, ability to see that everything that was needed you know, everything that's needed to fix the problems we're wrestling with is not coming from the institutions that actually created the systems that made those problems. And that's... Yeah, I think in the church, we would call that faith. Well, yes. Saying, yes, we can help all these people. Yes, we can um, provide high-quality medicine in uh, or healthcare in Haiti as we do in Manhattan. We can do that. Do I know where every single dollar is coming from? No, but we can do it. I well, know we can do it. That's We would call that faith. Or God can do it. Yes. And it's our job not to hold back what we have. And yes. I think that, and it's our job to be willing to look like fools, right? Like it's our job to be willing. And that's like the long defeat, right? People are like, well, I don't want to do that because it won't work. And like, sure. Okay. I get it. I, I'm not as naive as I am credited with being, but sometimes the job is to fail because your failure manifests more truth than your petty success would. And that was the thing that the elders at the Grove were so wise and forthright when the Grove was dying. And there's this question of like, why are we trying to become a multi-ethnic church when there's like 15 white people left and we stink at every single thing that we are supposed to do in order to become a thriving church? Like, it's never going to work. Why not just pack it up? And they said it would be if we're going to die, let's die bearing witness to what we think the kingdom is and not just bearing witness to we held on to what we had for as long as we could, right? Like, if we get, if we're gonna die, let's die telling a story we believe in, even if it makes us look like. So fools. in that moment, your your boundaries, your limits, your ceiling melt away, mm -hmm. and you're you're just free. You're free because you're willing to fail, mm -hmm. which I would say is picking up your cross. Mm -hmm. Right there's, so we are doing this podcast on my dining room table, and my family, who I love, anyway. <laughs> 
has a jigsaw puzzle that has been moved to various places around this house for the past six weeks and it was supposed to be completed by this weekend and it is not and it is on the dining room table and there's piles of puzzle pieces everywhere and the microphones are just like (laughs) on top of it and I'm trying to put my elbow down on the table and puzzle pieces are sticking to me and casting I'm annoyed I'm sorry just my keen powers of discernment are picking up that you are a bit irritated about this anyway I don't even know where we are in our process. That was astonishing. We've only gotten yeah. to astonishment. <laughs> this might be bad. What are you thinking about? I am thinking about this question. And before I state the question, I need to say I don't have an answer, which is why I'm thinking about it. I'm really wrestling with this. Uh, especially after an event um, you and I attended last week. But my my question is this. um, As an African-American Christian in a predominantly white denomination, what is my duty? What is my calling to help my white brothers and sisters with their racism. On the one hand, I see a need. I see how I might be helpful. And I most certainly believe in multi-ethnic community, uh, Christian community, and that requires all of us to put in time, energy, sacrifice, to be vulnerable, all the things. But on the other hand, I am keenly aware that it's very easy, even in the midst of my white brothers and sisters who are sincerely seeking to advance the cause of anti-racism to still then center the needs of white people. And so then um, my presence is used for their benefit. And I'm wrestling with how much of that I should say yes to as my service to Christ and his church. And at what point does it become the very opposite of what we're seeking to become, to accomplish, which is to become a truly multi-ethnic, um, not only denomination, uh, but Presbytery, and to really, truly become anti-racist. And I'm not clear on that. And and the reason I'm asking this question is because last week you and I were a part of our Presbytery's anti-racism training. And my frustration was that it simply, entirely, completely, 100%, centered the need of our white brothers and sisters 
to deal with their racism and the history of racism in this country. I think it's necessary. I think it's good. I think that ought to happen. But I kept asking myself, why am I in the room? Why, why am I here? Um, and add to that, Comments and conversation about the whole process being so difficult for everyone, so difficult for white people to look at the history of racism. And I was a bit irritated. I'm thinking this this is my life. If After a series of videos, we were asked in small groups, what was new? What was new to you? What did you learn? What, what, what are you seeing for the first time? And I found myself saying, to myself, if any of this is new to me, I'm in trouble. Like I, I must for my own sanity and survival, learn these things very early in life. And for my colleagues who all have master's degrees in theology, th these are not, um, these are not ignorant people to hear these things were so new and so difficult. It was disturbing to me. And um, reflecting on the, on the part of our conversation we just had, really wanted a couple of Paul Farmers <laughs> in the room, like other white people, to say, to, to challenge where we were, uh, to challenge what we were doing. Uh, and... And I've said this to you before, I, I think there is a role for African Americans to help um, midwife um, white people into the truth of being anti-racist. But again, um, simply to be called to go along for, for the ride for me is a waste of time and a bit of an insult. No, let me put that slightly, um, slightly differently, uh, not just an insult. It makes me feel invisible. Mm -hmm. and, th and that was the problem, it's like, okay, Racism exists, we all acknowledge that. We've gotta do something about racism. It's in the church, it's in society. So now, white people, <laughs> here, here's what you need. And there was no energy, there was no intentionality in that whole six hours about the, need, the needs, plural, of African Americans and other people of, cult, uh, of color to navigate a racist society and racism in the church that just wasn't even a part of it. And I know that there's only so much you can do in six hours, but yeah, I feel like it was unnecessary. I, I think that it it's, so I, it was a really, oh, go ahead. Well, well I was just gonna say, and at the same time, what really makes it difficult for me is that I am aware that I could potentially say something that's critical 
of the whole event and the need to do anti-racist training and have someone white in the room who's just very happy with their racism and very happy with the way things are, say, ah, look, here's a black person criticizing this, and so I don't need to do this either. Right. Right? And so I, I just find this very difficult to navigate. I think what's hard for um, the Presbytery of Charlotte in particular, and I think you and I both, it, it's not that we don't think, and obviously we don't always 100% see things the same way, obviously, but I... I think, just because we've talked about this a lot, that we both do really support the idea of regular mandatory anti-racism training Absolutely. in our history, like 100%. The question is, how does it get done? And what we know for sure is that intent and impact are two different things. And I think the, the larger question is, is anybody in the PCUSA system free enough of entrenched white supremacy to be able to design a process that will not inadvertently reinforce the very structures that it's seeking to tear down. Because obviously the people who are on the anti-racism task force of the Presbyterian of Charlotte, like I, I care deeply for them. I, I honor them. I admire their and integrity. And seeking to do a good work. Right. And I, and I, and you and I both feel that way. Um, so it's not a question of, is anybody a bad actor? Like, no, the people who designed this training and advocated for it, um, are doing r really faithful work and are paying a high price for it. And, and I get that. I think the problem is the Presbyterian church writ large and in our local context is so formed by white supremacy that we can't even see see it and we can't even be aware of all the ways that we have accommodated ourselves to it so that there are just some things that are normal for us that are not healthy and we probably really need an outsider to come in and look at how we operate and then tell us the truth about ourselves. And so what I appreciate about what they did was they used part of a curriculum created by a black woman. Um, it's called Brown city and I'm blanking on her name right now. I'm Lucretia Carterberry designed it and it is specifically for faith groups. And I, I have no, um, I, I have, I have nothing but honor and respect for what she has designed, but you know, they are trying to use this curriculum, part of this curriculum in a context that it wasn't designed for. And, you know, I, I'm a big believer in not letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. But I think it's hard. And even though that is a multi-ethnic group that's putting this training together, it's hard. Like what I know for myself about a white person is even though I want with my whole heart to be part of the work of liberation and I know that I need redemption and I know repentance is part of that I can't see my own ish right and I'm also aware or at least I'm curious from a place of humble curiosity I think it's really hard to just assume that every person of color who has to function within the historically white and culturally white supremacist presbytery of charlotte culture is really um, able to show up as fully and freely as they might in another space, right? If you just, 
and I'm saying this from a, a place of curiosity and humility, but I just imagine that there's a lot of internal calculus going on all the time of like, how much can I say? How honest can I be? and still get invited to this table, right? And I'm not mad at that. Like, it's just, we're all humans. But I just think it's 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 worth asking the question, can we really design for ourselves the system that we need to liberate ourselves? And I do think for me, it's kind of a part of the larger Presbyterian culture that I think is not very healthy, which is, in my experience, I have never experienced a Presbyterian question that did not have a Presbyterian answer, right? So like if we have a problem in our denomination, we go look for one of us to solve it. Now, to be fair, Lucretia Carter-Berry is not a Presbyterian, but the Presbytery of Charlotte, to my knowledge, did not go to Lucretia Carter-Berry and say, can we hire you as a consultant to design this for us and you know I don't and that might be a question of resources although Paul Farmer would say (laughs) do we really not have the resources or do we really just not want to spend them in that way but I think ultimately if what we know we know that our denomination was formed in a cultural moment where white supremacy ran the table and we know that is counter to the values of the gospel and we know that it's killing us then like what shouldn't we be willing to invest in our own liberation and salvation and i i just think like all of the questions that you're raising and the questions that I mean, as a white person, like, I'm going to show up and sit down at a table and really try my best not to, um, I'm just aware of how I want to protect myself from the discomfort of saying, like, this is my heritage and my history, and I don't want to separate myself out from that and, and seem like I don't have things, I mean, I, I, I have everything to learn, but I I also then want to be someone who is willing to stand up and say, like, I'm happy to take the hits and ask the questions because I have a lot more safety and security in the system than some of my colleagues who don't have white skin have. So I just think it's hard. I I really um, felt, I mean, I felt uncomfortable about the ways that white comfort inadvertently might have been being recentered in the setup of the design from all the best intentions. And I, you know, for me, it was asking a question a lot about like, it was comforting for me as a white person to see a black woman who I really honor as a colleague, like press pause on those videos and encourage me to take deep breaths and to like, acknowledge my pain and to let me know that it was hard like it was very comforting for me and I'm not sure that as a white person being comforted in that moment was ultimately good for my soul Um, because I don't think that you know Jesus sometimes was comforting but a lot of times was not yeah and my position is the very thought of my white colleagues needing comfort in those moments. It's just, 
it's almost anathema to me. I just, yeah. Yep. Like really? But I think what's hard is, and I, I, what's true. I just feel like we, we took the lowest common denominator approach. Yeah. Who would be most offended by anti-racism training and let's make sure they are okay at the end of the training. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that what is, um, which is not trash, but let's acknowledge that's what we're doing, that this isn't for everybody. Listen, if someone, if I'd received an email or if someone had called me and said, listen, Yolando, we recognize this really isn't for you. We recognize that as an African-American, as an African-American serving a historically white congregation, you probably need something different. However, we need your presence in, in this. I can say yes to that because then I'm entering into this with a totally different mindset. My, it's a mindset of service. It's a mindset of giving. And I can, yeah, I can, I can rock with that. Um, and this is going to sound prideful, but I think it's just true to assume or to think that most, if any African-Americans need what we went through last week, I just, it's just wrong. I think the problem also is if, if as a white person, I'm only willing to face the truth about the level of trauma that my ancestors and near ancestors and contemporary fellow white people inflict on a daily basis to my brothers and sisters. And if I'm, if I'm only willing to face that as long as it's comfortable to me to face it, as long as someone is continually saying to me like, but not you, you're one of the good ones. Like if that, then that just teaches me that that's what I deserve and what I should have. And it teaches me that my own feelings are more important than the actual injustice and trauma that is perpetrated again. Like I just don't, then I'm not loving my, my brothers and sisters more than myself. I'm loving myself more than my brothers and sisters. Right. It's like that. So, I mean, again, but I think we both are caught in this quandary of like, we don't want to discourage work that we believe needs to happen. Correct. And we also want to be able to just, tell the truth and not, and know that we're not trying to tear anyone or anything down, but we have to tell the truth. And I do think like part of the transformation process that we went through really explicitly, we're told, Hey, you have got to stop centering in your congregations, the least healthy people, right? Which they told us all the time. Like you have people in your congregation who say and do outrageous and offensive and unhealthy things. And you've been taught this version of pastoring that says like, well, but, but we need them here, so we can't tell them the truth, because if we tell them the truth, they might leave, and if they leave, then we failed them as the body of Christ. And it was, you know, the consultants, like, bless Bob and Bill coming in and saying, like, if you do that, what you're telling the healthy people is that uh, that uh, that unhealth is what we center here. That mm-hmm. And 
and that you're going to attract more people who are looking for a place where they can say and do harmful things and their feelings will be centered over the lived experiences of the people they're harming. And I remember they told a story about like, if you had a person in your congregation, like Uncle Ben, uh, who who kept up uh, in his pocket a bunch of straight pens and every Sunday he would just walk around and pick four or five people and he would just jam straight pens into their arms and it hurt, mm-hmm. didn't kill him, but it hurt. But everybody in the congregation knew that like, oh, that's just what, that's just being, that's that's what, just he does. what he does. And then somebody new comes into your congregation and Ben walks up to them and like jams them in the arm with a straight pen. And you go up to the new person and you're like, I'm really sorry that happened to you. It was wrong, but like, it's just what Ben does. And we love Ben. So this is what, you know, the new person would be like, A, I'm never coming back here. And B, you all believe in stabbing people with pens. And we'd be like, no, 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 no. We know it's wrong, but you, you don't, I mean, but you love this person enough to just, and honestly, you are infantilizing this person and saying there's no way that they can change and grow. And you're saying there's no context outside of this community that the Lord could actually be pouring into them and growing. And so I just, I wonder if there is some like some synergy here to be able to say, okay, when we do this anti-racism training, who are we centering? And can we be honest about that? Let's just name it. And if it's white people, own it. But I think it's hard to do that because on the face of it, if you say we're doing anti-racism training and we're centering white people, like that's a paradox that doesn't, I mean, you can't, that doesn't make sense. It's hard to, I mean, and to be clear, I don't, I just, I'm aware that some people are. That does not offend me because if we're saying we're doing anti-racism training because we want the white pastors, white elders, and eventually white congregations to serve as salt and light in this racist society to to learn how to be um, effective allies in the struggle against racism, to, as, as we were saying about Paul Farmer, to go beyond this duality of right confession versus right action. If we want to do more than say we're against racism, we want to have a right confession and a right living. If that's what the training is about, great. Well, I mean, I think that what's hard is on the surface of it, if we're saying we're doing anti-racism training and we're centering white people and the whole point of anti-racism is that acknowledging that white people are always centered and white culture is always centered in all of our institutions, then there's just an, an inherent paradox in that. But I think you're right. There's a place for, and I've been a part of like years ago, I think it was even the Presbytery of Charlotte. No, it was Mec- Men, um, Mecklenburg Ministries, which is a interfaith collaborative in Mecklenburg County did a series of like small groups that they launched and they called them the souls of white folks. And the, the premise, the construct was let's gather some groups of white people to get together, to do the work together of learning about racism, learning about whiteness, like looking at all of these traumatic things, but doing it in a space where we're not asking people of color to do the emotional labor of caring for the white people, right? And so I'm not saying that's the only way to do things, but for me as a white person, 
it was really helpful to have that commitment with other white people that was facilitated by a white person who had been trained. I mean, I'm not saying people of color obviously had a deep role in had, I mean, determined as my understanding, like what we read and what questions we discussed and what we were tasked with doing. But the idea was, I mean, the idea explicitly was people of color don't need to learn about racism. White people do. And people of color don't need to learn about how what institutions in America have been formed. Racism has been baked in. White people do. White people need their eyes open and white need people need to stop expecting people of color to do deep traumatic work for free to care for them in the process. And this idea that well, white people just white people sometimes as we're processing it, we're going to say and do things that are that are potentially harmful and it is best in that space if it is not a person of color who is wounded by those initial processing resistance, whatever. It's best if there are other trained white people in that space who can say, hey, I hear you. I love you. This is a natural process. And do you recognize what you just said? And do you recognize the impact? And do you recognize, right, that it doesn't, shouldn't have to be wounding the souls of people of color. And it is not the souls of people of color who are damaged by racism. That's why the thing was called the souls of white folks, because it's white people saying like, it's our souls that need to be redeemed. And it's our souls that need to repent. And it's our souls that need to do this overwhelming work of beholding the depth of the depravity and brokenness of a world that we've lived in all along, but we have been choosing to be blind to. Uh, years ago, um when I was in seminary many years ago, uh, Louisville Seminary sent me to this training in Chicago uh, called SCOOP, Seminary Consortium for Urban Pastoral Education, something like that. But it was mostly about being anti-racist. And I remember I went with my classmate and friend, Jeannie Bates, a white woman, and the leaders of this conference uh, was a, a Catholic priest by the name of Joseph Barnt. He wrote a book entitled Dismantling Racism, a white Catholic priest. It was uh, Jim Wallace, a mm -hmm. white man, Sojourner's Magazine, and then a black woman, Yvonne Belk, I think was her name. And um, there, was, <laughs> there was a part of that conference where they said, okay, we're talking to the white people in the room, especially uh, the Catholic priest, the white Catholic priest and Jim Wallace. He's okay, we're talking to the white people about being anti-racist. Mm -hmm. And for my friend Jeannie, that was good for her soul. She appreciated that. And that allowed me a moment of, it's like, yeah, y'all need to hear this. That was very helpful. And it was it was done in such a way that we could all be in the room, all be in the space. And um, I just think we have something to learn. Well, there. because I think the reality is one of the, I think, unstated assumptions in the training we were just a part of, and we're learning, we're growing, I'm not, I'm just, is that we all were starting in the same place and we're not starting in the same place. We're just yeah. not. And we never will. Like as a white woman, for as long as I choose to be in the work of anti-racism, and it's a choice for me, I will never 
enter into those conversations in the same place that you do because it's not a choice for you. And and I think just to, and like if we can't even just tell the truth that I think as white people in particular, we want to believe that like that we're good and that things are fair and that we're all individuals and we can't be lumped together in groups. Like we want to believe that about ourselves, not about other people, but we want to believe that about ourselves. And especially if we're sort of the quote progressive white people, we want to think that we are just the same as black people who are confronting racism. And we're not, Mm -hmm. we're just not. That doesn't mean we're garbage. It doesn't mean we're bad, but we can just walk in and say like, I'm not a leader in this space. I'm a follower and that's okay. And that's a holy thing to be as well. And I can acknowledge that what I might need, my brother and sister or sister who's a person of color doesn't need what I need. And the difference is not one of ontology or morality right. it's just or lived worth. Ex- or worth yes it's about lived experience so i have to know the history of racism i have to know where certain tropes come from because i'm trying to navigate a system it helps me i must and know raise this. a child in that system yes yeah and so and and my white colleagues don't have to learn that mm-hmm. in order to get along in life right and the reality is for so many white people if we want to we can live an entirely white life mm-hmm. and we can only interact with people of color who we are paying to serve us like that is true in charlotte north carolina it's true you don't have to have a black friend you don't have to have a latinx friend you don't have to have colleagues like even in the presbytery of charlotte where we have um you know so many um the more black presbyterian churches than any other part of the country but if i'm a white presbyterian pastor if i want to organize my life that way i can show up at presbytery meetings i can nod at people, I can choose or not choose to sit next to them at a committee table, and I can have the illusion that I have a multi-ethnic community when in reality, I go home to my neighborhood that's all white, I send my kids to school that's all white, I church is all white, I live in a part of town where I very rarely see a face that is not white, and I can live my life that way. And no one within those communities is going to tell me that there's anything problematic about that because everyone in those communities is invested in saying, this is normal, there's nothing wrong here, and there's certainly nothing racist here. This is just how we happen to live, nothing to see. Mm-hmm. So, but I, I, I mean, I really am grateful for the anti-racism task force and for the people who are serving on that task force because I, I know that they um, are just getting resistance from from all sides. And, um, and I hope that this, I mean, whatever, I don't know that anyone would hear it, but I mean, I hope that, I mean, we'll fill out evaluations and I hope that it would be not like I'm, I'm critical. I'm just engaging, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, and the, sort of the whole point is to begin to normalize engaging and begin to be able to say, like, I can disagree with someone without rejecting them or questioning their motives. I can just say, hey, there's lots of different ways to go. There's lots of different ways to follow Jesus, and there's lots of different ways to engage with the brokenness in the world. And, you know, that, I mean, for me as a white person, I'm just saying, like, it's not an attack. It's a response. Yes, uh, same here. Um, and I would also add 
that um, you know when you are an African American serving um, pastorally a historically white congregation, and you're trying to now navigate the society, it's a lot. Yeah, I'm tired. Yeah, <laughs> and then to add this, it's like okay, here we go again. And for me, I'm you know just looking in the Zoom space. I'm like, well, a lot of people get to go back to their regularly scheduled lives. For me, it's it's a continuation of like okay, uh, it's 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 back into navigating this very real stuff on a daily basis, and it's it's hard. And I'm not sure if if that training was really any help for me personally or pastorally. It just, it well, just wasn't for me. Right. I think that one thing that is, and as I think we're moving towards doing more quote cross racial appointments. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's just not enough honesty about among white people. Like we're not honest enough about ourselves to know what we're asking when we ask a person of color to come in and be our pastor and the way that we will perceive them genuinely pastoring us as being aggressive or being confrontational or not being yes. pastoral because I'm going to tell you the truth about something that makes you really uncomfortable and then you're going to say like, well, do you even love me then? Or you're mean or you're angry. So, um if I could use the analogy of gender, if a woman goes to serve a congregation as senior or solo pastor, we would be very sensitive to if, for example, there were, and let's, let's say uh, uh, this pastor is single, um, like a number of male congregants asking her out or making um, sexual suggestions. like, But I don't think we have that same sensitivity when it comes to black pastors serving white congregations who get asked about the curse of Ham. Like, why would you be our pastor when, is, isn't this true? Um, mm -hmm. Or can I touch your hair? <laughs> I mean, just those kinds of microaggressions are very real and hard to navigate. Well, and they just, they, they take a lot of emotional energy to work through. And I yes. think, and I don't know, I mean, and you can tell me, but it would seem to me that if we're going to do cross-racial appointments, and I think we should, Absolutely. there there ought to be a process whereby white churches put some skin in the game to say like, hey, before your pastor shows up, are you willing as a congregation to do some training about some ways that you interact that might seem very normal to you that actually wouldn't be healthy? Are you willing to do a little bit of study about how white church culture and black church culture are different? Very different. And so some of just things that you think are normal and are, you know, are not normal in other spaces. And there might just be a misfire of expectations. And I mean, and, and if a church is not willing to do that, then it's, really hard to expect a person of color to show up and pastor in that space and not, and just like, well, you just deal with it. Like you just right. basically yeah. Yeah. not only lead people in Christ, but also lead them through anti-racism work at the expense of your own embodied soul. And, and it'll be invisible and it's not really happening and it won't. I mean, like that's just a hard thing, but um, like you got to navigate what happens when there are, the, the, the day comes when there are 
as many or more ethnic minorities as members of the congregation than the historic white members. That That's a place of real anxiety and tension. Well, and we just talked about this a lot, and I know we need to wrap up this podcast, but like multi-ethnic congregations are everybody's ideal because everybody idealizes them and thinks like, oh, it would be great to have a bunch of people who look like X who come and be a part of my church. But the work. But, well, I mean, we just assume like, oh, they will they mm-hmm. will come in and, and do conform. like us, right? Mm-hmm. And so you don't realize that like, yes, it's wonderful to have a multi-ethnic community, but it will cost you something. There's a reason that your church is not already multi-ethnic. That's what I want to get at. It will cost you something. A conversation about the cost for everyone involved in this kind. That's what I want to get at. And usually what it costs, especially for white people, usually what it costs is comfort. Like usually what it costs us is realizing like, oh, these people, I want these people, like these brothers and sisters, I want them just to be my friends, but I'm aware that they still see me as white. And that hurts my feelings or like, you know, that's, that's just true. And we have to be willing to say like, well, do you want to be comfortable? Do you want to be seen as an individual and not white? If you do, then you're going to need to stay in an all white church. But if what you want is to be part of a healthy and holy multi-ethnic community, then you have to be willing to sometimes be uncomfortable. You have to be willing to really have to wrestle with your whiteness in a way that you will never have to wrestle with it in any other place, because ironically, in no other place is anybody going to be free enough and safe enough to be honest with you about how they really experience you. And I say that as a, I mean, as a pastor of a multi-ethnic church, like it, it is, I mean, my congregation is amazing. And I know that at times for some members of my congregation, it's a liability to them that I am white and they have to show me grace because of things I do or things I don't know, or, you know, miscues and mistakes. And like, they're sacrificing to have me as their pastor. And that's not the calculus that I, I, you know, (laughs) I don't like to. So anyway, I, I, I think we need to have deep, uncomfortable conversations if healing and new life is going to come because new life isn't going to come if we can't even name the reality right. of current life mm-hmm. and naming the reality of current life is going to make a lot of us really, really uncomfortable. And we have to say, okay, like I want something more than comfort. Anyway, we, uh, you're just laughing because I say it every week that we have to stop talking and that's what's making you laugh. Yes. Okay. And now you're laughing so much you can't even talk anymore. So I'll just do my little wrap up spiel. You can end the podcast now if you want. Um, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Derrida Presbyterian Church, which is D-E-R-I-T-A-P-R-E-S dot org. That's their website. Go there. Yolando just rebuilt it. Or it's we're, in process. We're, 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 it's about to go live. And you need to check out their YouTube channel to see messages and you need to you need to download their podcast so you can hear um, back catalog messages from Derrida 
Um, and you can worship with them at 1030 on Sunday mornings. Um, find out about that on their website. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, our website is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel or our podcast, The Grove Church Podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to us. And we will talk to you next week.